listening to a podcast from The National. Captain Tillman Gabriel is the Executive Chairman of the International Pilot Training Association. After 37 years as an airline training captain and a varied career at senior executive level within the aviation industry, he joined City University of London to head its MSc Aviation Management programmes. With more than 400 enrolled part-time students and some 1,500 alumni worldwide, City is a key element in the future of global aviation. This is the National Business Extra podcast. My name is Chris Nelson, and recently Captain Gabriel spoke to me about his role and the outlook for the aviation sector. Tillman, you have an extensive um, background in the aviation sector. I wonder if you could um, briefly um, give us uh, a taste of of what you've done in the past before uh, coming to the university. Well, I started at Lufthansa as a pilot, uh, got trained in Lufthansa, and uh, that was a long time ago. Uh, and in those 20 years, my first half of my career in, in Lufthansa, I was a pilot, became a captain, a training captain, started several new fleets in Lufthansa, and became, after an MBA, also an executive uh, uh taking over responsibilities as chief operating officer and finally CEO, started several companies, airlines, training companies. And then um, after 20 years, I was headhunted to uh, go to a British Airways subsidiary in Germany, bring that uh, up and running. And uh, after that, I went to the US to start a business aircraft venture with Bombardier called Flexjet. And uh, from there, I came right here in 2002, 2003 into Abu Dhabi and started Royaljet, uh, the business aviation company and medevac company of the government uh, of Abu Dhabi. Mm-hmm. So you, you've you've started uh, several um, airlines and airline businesses. Briefly, how did you how did you start Royaljet? Did you just turn up and say, "Hi guys, I want to start an airline"? Not quite. <laughs> uh, there was um, a consulting firm who had pre- pre- um, started the business case um, that was uh, quite complete. Uh, they already had started the ways to get an aircraft operating certificate, and I was headhunted by a big uh, headhunting firm, and I joined end of 2002. And then within four months, um, I got the AOC running, a very challenging uh, task. Uh, we the AOC being the... Get it started, first yeah. flight in May. And incidentally, one of the first flights in 2003, or the first flight, I think, with the BBJ was to fly the interim president of Iraq. The war had just ended yeah. to the United Nations in New York. Wow. And um, if you are not uh, well prepared for all this, secret service and everything in New York, uh, it was uh, the first test of how sleepless nights drive <laughs> you into, <laughs> into a state Craziness. of uh, very, very uh, high um, energy and, yeah. and, um, and focus. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Funny, fun, fun moments. Very, very interesting times. Um, incidentally, I also started the first... Um, ICAO compliant, we call that. Um, uh, ICAO is our big um, uh, Montreal body. And if you don't have a regulatory body that mm-hmm. runs the local country's rules, um, I thought maybe I can go for the ICAO compliancy in Afghanistan. Uh, when okay. the Americans were there, this was in 2009-10. And we flew uh, uh, President Kazai through the world again to the uh, UN and again to Washington, and uh, so I could I could learn from my experiences. Yeah, yeah. And uh, when I started in Qatar Airways, Qatar Executive, that was also one of my uh, babies. We flew the uh, 
Libyan interim uh, president around the world uh, with uh, our business jets from Qatar, out of Qatar. Uh -huh. uh, so I guess I always get these jobs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, VIP passenger flights. Yeah, very good. Um, so, so with that um, very wide-ranging and, and in-depth background, um, you're now with um, University of London, um, teaching the the effectively airport management um, course there for, for for budding airport managers what what is your role there now I joined uh, City University of London in London um, about four years ago September uh, 14 and uh, the programs three programs were already existing and I uh, rebuilt them to really be effective for the management training of aviation employees around the world. We had three MSCs, um, so and we still have them, of course, uh, which is the Air Transport Master's Program, the Air Safety Master's Program, and the Aircraft Maintenance uh, Master's Program. And just now, uh, this year, I started the Airport Management Program because airports around the world also have a significant shortfall of qualified managers. All these four programs... Uh, I'm uh, heading directing as a director and it's fascinating because I now see the whole world of all kinds of aviation jobs, not just pilots, coming to our programs. Everyone has to write a dissertation uh, and the dissertation is very much on actual today's problems. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm having this incredible uh, blessedness of... of of having a, a direct and very, very um, timely interaction with uh, managers around the aviation world of what is the problem today. Mm -hmm. And we are teaching not only in London, in our fabulous campus in uh, the center of London, we also have, since many years, also for our uh, MBA program that is uh, run by the CAS Business School of City, University of London, we have a big center in the DIFC in Dubai where all my modules for aviation and, of course, also the MBA are taught. Here in Dubai for the UAE, many UAE uh, nationals, but also many, many uh, international people who are based here in the UAE or around the Middle East. And these programs are, uh, my four programs have over 400 uh, uh, enrolled students at all times and over 1,500 alumni. And my alumni are all over the aviation industry and senior jobs. So the networking part uh, it has become also a very important mm -hmm. part of our programs the uh, obviously this region is uh, from an aviation perspective known for for its phenomenal growth over a very short period of time um, particularly the UAE um, and Dubai and uh, Abu Dhabi airports what do you think um, over the past 10 years have been the primary drivers for that growth well, the primary driver of the whole Middle East, which is Abu Dhabi, Dubai, and Qatar, uh, of course, Gulf Air and Bahrain uh, has the uh, honor of being the oldest, and now um, they always had their challenges because of the uh, aspect of, of Bahrain and, and uh, having, having a different scope uh, for a long time. But Emirates was the first, uh, Qatar Airways followed, and now uh, Etihad had this concept of having this region here as the hub of all flying. 
this center here, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Qatar, is in the center of the world. Every part of the world, 80% uh, percent of our mankind, you can reach from here within 12, 13, 14 hours. And now with these new aircraft generations, 20 hours flight time is no longer a problem. And that is, of course, what made this hub so successful. Together with you know, Emirates, um, I, I think, invented that somehow, to have a huge shopping mall, meaning a uh, duty-free uh, arena around, around the Dubai airport where you can spend those two, three hours uh, turnaround time in a very luxurious shopping environment. Airports today have become a mall, mm. a shopping mall, some with exciting features around them, and they have, as we jokingly said, uh, they have a runway attached to it. <laughs> uh, and, and this is a new discussion of airlines towards airports and the relatively high fees airports make from each airline um, uh, landing and parking. And the airlines say, we bring you the customers, so why should we pay fees? So that's a new discussion that we have here worldwide, not only in, in, in Dubai, mm -hmm. of course, uh, Uh, it is uh, important, and Dubai is um, uh, with its new second airport, um, and will remain certainly a center. Do you think that? Um, do you think that model will change? Then, do you think they have a, a, a legitimate argument that will, in fact, change the way it's run? It is. It has changed already. Um, uh, the hub concept is still working for many passengers uh, and is working of course very well for Emirates uh, Etihad here in Abu Dhabi is a little later to the stage so uh, they're still developing that but uh, with the um, development over the uh, introduction now since several years of the A350 from Airbus and the uh, Boeing 787 from Boeing two competing aircraft a double aisle around 250 passengers these two aircraft can fly up to 18, 19 hours at the moment. The next generation in two, three years will fly 21 hours. Mm -hmm. And London, uh, Sydney, is then possible. It will be the longest flight in the history of flight uh, of about 25, 21 hours. Um, but uh, these two aircraft now can connect all kinds of regions uh, nonstop. And that is, of course, men, uh, used uh, not only by the Middle Eastern airlines, um, yes, but, but also by uh, the European airlines and more and more also in the future by American and other airlines. And that then, uh, a passenger does not necessarily want to have a stopover. They want to fly nonstop. And that, of course, takes some market share away from those three airlines mm -hmm. here in the region. Mm -hmm. Do you think... Um Obviously, also the rise of, of um, long-haul single-aisle aircraft, uh, which uh, who, who, the range of which are, are becoming increasingly um, uh, longer. Um, does that have the potential to effectively bypass hubs such as, um, and indeed, obviously, with the A350 and, the, and the, the new generation 350 and the 787s, do you think there is uh, the possibility that hubs such as Dubai Abu Dhabi and, and the others in the, in this region, particularly from the east-west uh, um, transfer of passengers' point of view, that there is the possibility that, that their roles will change or, or even decline as, as uh, major hubs? Dubai is a fixture. Um, and Abu Dhabi, when they open their new airport, uh, will, will have a similar exposure. So I don't think uh, there is a significant decline because, uh, let's uh, not forget, Chris, that our industry is growing 100% percent 
every 15 years. That has nothing to do with Dubai, Abu Dhabi or any other airport, uh, Dubai being the third largest airport in the world after Atlanta and Beijing. And that will continue to stay. Whether they have the dramatic climbs of passenger numbers in the future is dependent how fast uh, the 787 A350 is developing these nonstop routes that passengers usually prefer. On the price side, of course, um, let's not forget that if you fly via Dubai or, or via a stopover, you have a lower price, and many people including the shopping trip, uh, uh, would prefer that. You know, if you save 500 pounds, why not have a stopover in Dubai, Abu Dhabi yeah. or Qatar? Yeah. So I think if you market that right, um, the incredible investment that the United Arab Emirates and, and Qatar did in this region will continue. Mm -hmm. um, the Turkish airlines, uh, whatever happens in Iran with their thrive to build airlines will become a competitive factor because they're also very close to this world center, mm -hmm. if you wish as a hub um, from the from point of view of an airport manager uh, what what are the main the, the, the main commercial concerns that an airport manager would have for his airport in uh, generally do you think or is it completely different at each airport well we just have this airport conference in Dubai uh, opened yesterday for the next uh, two days to go and the main subject of this airport conference are these uh, security detection devices and the renovation of those. We passengers hate mm. to be there one and a half, two hours before flight. We hate to stand there in long lines and waiting to be body searched or you know, have to unpack all the suitcases or you know the hand baggage and whatever. Uh, we all know those rules. We all got accustomed to those rules. And hate but the them. industry, <laughs> we hate it. And the industry is now uh, offering devices where you literally only walk through a big gate. The baggage goes through a scanning device and everything is... Uh, is staying inside or you you don't have to undress. And is that new technology completely or is that um, re redeveloped? It is a very uh, fine-tuned um, uh, technology, uh, new te technology, of course, as well, highly computerized. You know, you need um, this intelligent computers to identify, instead of a human being, what is in that baggage or what is what is around this body. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, we don't, for this kind of routine things, we don't really need people mm -hmm. to touch you and find out what is in there. Uh, a computer or a scanner can easily identify a computer uh, with maps. Uh, you know, picture mm -hmm. mapping uh, is easily... Uh, and AI and deep learning, I yeah. suppose, yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. There seems to me, and I'm, I'm no expert, but it seems to me that relatively recently, i.e. the past two, three, four years, um, in places such as Saudi Arabia, in uh, India to a certain extent planned, in China and other areas of Southeast Asia, there's been an, an explosion of planned uh, airport infrastructure, you know, 50 in, in uh, 50 regional airports in India, goodness knows how many in China, um, with Saudi Arabia's uh, economic um, revolution going on, there's going to be uh, an influx of tourism, which will, of course, require airport infrastructure upgrade on a huge scale. What is it that has caused that, to me, sudden acceleration of um airport infrastructure around around the world, it's, well, apart from the West, around around the world. I mentioned earlier, uh, Chris, that we grow our industry by 100% every 15 years. Now, how long does it take to develop an airport, especially in a democratic country where governments change and, um, you know, all kinds of environmental 
uh, sustainability issues, noise issues, um, where do we put the runway and how is it affecting the neighboring uh, buildings and my, the price of my mm -hmm. property. Heathrow uh, being a Heathrow prime is example. a classic <laughs> example. So in Western countries, it's much more difficult to do what you just described as, uh, for example, in, in, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, India also is a very democratic country, but India is way behind in its mm -hmm. development. Uh, that is part because of the very restrictive uh, regulations part um, of the governments. Uh, but Prime Minister Modi has an aviation law and uh, that has really changed the landscape in India. China is you know, trying to grow as quickly as possible. Uh, an airport with uh, design um, and, and all these issues that you have to watch today is taking 10 to 20 years. Mm -hmm. If you look at my hometown Berlin, uh, this <laughs> is now 30 years, uh, a 30 year project. Uh, these are things that hinder our growth because we don't have enough airports. India with its 1.6 billion people definitely has too little airports and now with the growth of the GDP in India of 8.6% per year over the foreseeable future has an income rise that more and more Indians now can travel and demand travel. Streets and uh, buses are absolutely, uh, I mean, railways and buses and uh, not streets are absolutely a disaster. Of course, that has to be fixed as well. Not everybody sh can and must fly. But uh, flying in India has become a huge, huge demand and, and uh, there is not enough uh, infrastructure. Uh, similar in China with its people, China and India will clearly take over the U.S. at some point whether it's in three or five years. So flying, and also uh, domestic flying, of course, but also international flying uh, is a huge demand in those countries um, that is uh, going. Another very interesting development is happening in Africa. That continent is also starting to grow and starting to uh, to come up with also a very, very limited uh, infrastructure. If you look at Ethiopian Airlines, Addis Abeba, they have a very small airport. They're now expanding it with 300 million invest. So these are things, uh, a very prominent airline in a very, very poor country. So mm. um, the scarcity of a country has nothing necessarily to do with the quality and the significance of the airline. Nigeria, for example, um, 180, 200 million people, no functioning airline. Mm. Uh, so these are things that um, are driving Africa's growth as well. Mm -hmm. um, from the the uh, the teaching uh, or the the, the uh, university course, not only in London, obviously, but uh, the campuses you have elsewhere. Um, off the back of of, of what has happened. Uh, recently in Saudi Arabia with, for instance, women being allowed to drive um, and a, a, a kind of a gender change around the world, really, a much more awareness of the role that women should play and, uh, and can play in, in every every sector. Have you seen an increase in um, interest from, from the uh, potential female uh, managers or workers within the aviation sector? Is that increasing in your... It's growing, Chris, but uh, very, very slow. Uh, we still have those traditional uh, role models. Uh, yes, Saudi Arabia is opening up um, uh, its culture and uh, women are allowed to drive. Uh, women already fly uh, fighter airplanes. Uh, Saudi Arabia has a couple of female pilots. Um, I started in Lufthansa in the 80s, the first female in the cockpit that was that is now 30 years ago, 35 years almost. And we still, in Lufthansa, for example, we still have only 6% women. Mm -hmm. It is because you don't have 
the same amount of applications than men. Uh, these jobs are still considered traditionally male jobs, and that is a mistake. I'm also the executive chairman of the International Pilot Training Association, and in that we are the part of ICAO, uh, the UN organization in Montreal for our, organ for our aviation business, uh, which has a so-called NGAP program, a uh, new generation of aviation personnel, and we are representing the part of the pilot search. And uh, the big problem here is that we need 640,000 pilots in the next 20 years. And we have a huge problem already today. We have not enough problem, uh, pilots. Emirates is seeing the shortfall of pilots significantly. Uh, European airlines and in the US, three regional airlines have already closed down. And one of the key focuses of our message is women. Why are you not applying? Why are you not coming in the cockpit? We only have worldwide 3% women. Mm. India, for example, has 13% women. So they started really? uh, China 14%. So those two countries, probably because of their sociocultural development in the past, they do have a much higher percentile of women. Why don't we look for 40-year-olds who have an interest in a career change? You can still fly for 30 years when you're 40, assuming that you know at retirement age goes mm. up and up and up. Mm. But um, this is a huge problem for the airline, especially the airline industry, of course, aviation. Um, the business aviation and the helicopter industry have the same problem and uh, airlines are uh, currently um, uh, behaving catch as catch can. Uh, the mm -hmm. salaries of pilots go up and up and up, um, especially in China. Um, so this is why I am propagating a very new design of the pilot profession. It is a global profession and therefore I am challenging the countries and the many local cultural Uh, issues, especially also here in the UAE, that we have a global pilot that has a global visa uh, work permit, mm -hmm. and then he or she becomes a normality that he or she is from whatever country, but he or she is a pilot, a captain, whatever you need, and can work immediately globally. Emirates has a department, a vice president, good friend of mine, um, uh, Dr. Nick, who is in charge of this cultural aspect. Because in Emirates, you have over 90 nations in the cockpit, and you have over almost every world country is represented in the cabin, 190, I believe. Uh, so Nick Dahlstrom is organizing this whole cultural envelope that Emirates uh, has to cover, that all cultures, all religions, all backgrounds, all whatever upbringings are working together effectively. That's key for the safety in our business. And uh, he has just won a prize uh, for this absolutely uh, leading um, and, and uh, role modeling um, uh, safety organization, human factor organization that Emirates has done in the past year. So uh, congratulations to Nick. Mm, very much so. Um, finally, uh, we're running out of time. So finally, um, I wonder if I could ask, in your experience, what is the worst and the best airport you've been through? That would be <laughs> a dangerous statement, Chris, because <laughs> I'm working with a lot of airports. As I said, we have now the airport management program, and we hope that we get, again, many women. Uh, our first students are Emirati women out of Abu Dhabi, uh, a very um, uh, interesting woman. The first uh, uh, female air traffic controller here in Abu Dhabi is our first student in the MSC airport management 
that started just this week. Um, so there are so many airports that are not getting it. Mm -mm. They are still in the old days where they have huge halls, all you know, all this uh, cubic meters of unused space, and you have to walk miles, literally miles, to get to your aircraft. Uh, obviously, not every airport can be like my hometown's airport, Tegel, where you just walk from the taxi to the airport gate five meters. But um, but these are things. Sounds like heaven. <laughs> <laughs> these are things that are. Uh, designing, de defining for me if the airport gets it or not. Mm -hmm. Passengers, especially business travelers, have to be fast moved through airports. Uh, we have, for security reasons, in many of the Asian airports, um, I don't want to name anyone specifically, where you have happened to me in one country that you have to have your uh, paper ticket in your hand, otherwise the security guard won't let you into the terminal. Now, in today's world, we have all our uh, um, um, you know, boarding passes on your on the laptop or on the smartphone. Mm -hmm. Happened to uh, me that the smartphone was out of battery, so I had nothing to prove that I will be a passenger and he wouldn't let me in. So these are things which uh, where new technology has to be thought more and more through. And as I said, in Dubai Airport Conference, is one of the many uh, conferences. We have a big one. Um, we had a big one in Stockholm the other day where these topics are uh, prime prime targets so that all airports become uh, very easy to, for passengers uh, to be checking in and to get to the aircraft. That would be a delight. Tillman, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me, Chris. Many thanks to Captain Gabriel for that fascinating insight into what makes an aviation leader. That was the National Business Extra podcast. You can find us on your usual app provider and at thenational.ae.